This podcast may contain graphic and or explicit content that may not be suitable for some listeners, especially kids like me. <laughs> Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the Real Life Podcast brought to you by the Thin Blue Line for Women. In this podcast, We open up and talk about real-life issues as they relate to first responders. It's raw, it's real, and it's about time. I'm Tamara, your host. Thanks for joining me. Are you looking for Thin Blue Line gear? It's available on our website at thinbluelineforwomen.com. That's thinbluelineforwomen.com the number four, women.com. Show your support for law enforcement and get your Thin Blue Line gear today. Just click on shop at thinbluelineforwomen.com. Don't forget, you can listen to The Real Life Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and on YouTube. Thank you for joining us. In this episode, I talk with Officer Anne Marie Carrizales, who tells the chilling story of the morning she was shot twice while conducting a routine traffic stop. Her life was forever changed that day. So go grab a beverage of your choice, maybe a snack and settle in because she has a very courageous story to share with us. Thanks for joining me. I'm being joined today by Officer Ann Carrizales. Hi, how are you today? Hey there, how's it going? It's going. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk to me today about your story. Well, thanks for asking me to come on. I appreciate it. Of course. So you are a sworn police officer for Meadows Place Police Department in Meadows Place, Texas, correct? Yes, I am. It's a it's a suburb of Houston. Oh god, oh, okay, gotcha. Houston. A lot of people don't know. Like you say Meadows Place and people are are they're like, what? We just usually say Houston. Well, Texas <laughs> is really big too. So that helps. Now, how long have you been a law enforcement officer? So I started my law enforcement career in the Marine Corps. <gasps> nice. Right. A lot of people, um, a lot of civilian police officers don't think that counts. Uh, I absolutely think it counts. Oh, uh, yeah. I was I was doing uh, rape and domestic violence investigations long before I ever hit the civilian streets. So I started my law enforcement career at a very young age, I joined the Marine Corps at 18. So uh, I went to MP school at Lackland Air Force Base when the school was actually there, but it's not oh there. Oh my anymore. gosh, hold on a second. I was in the Air Force. I went to Lackland Air Force Base and I was an SP. When were you there? 1988 in uh, June. I went to MP school at Lackland in 1992. That's when I got out of the military. That is so we, cool. We just missed each other. So I picked up where you left off is what I did yes. for a hot second. Yes, ma'am. 
So I went, there, uh, I went there for MP school and then I ended up being stationed at Camp Pendleton in uh, Oceanside, California. Yeah, California. And I ended up staying there for, for my entire tour. I spent uh, time with the 1st Marine Division there at Pendleton. Wow. MP, and then I went over to Security mm-hmm. Battalion. Uh, so I was an MP, both a field, as we refer to a field MP and uh-huh. a field MP. So field uh-huh. MP trains for military police enforcement in um, wartime situations in the field. And then uh, basically they say it's a grunt with with an armband that says MP. Yeah. And, right. and then base MPs are the traditional sense of patrol, reports, calls for mm-hmm. things like that. So right. I started in... 92 and and then I started my civilian career in 2010. Okay, so you've been on for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And you're a mom of two, correct? Yeah. I'm a mom yeah. of two. I have a son and a daughter. Oh, what are their ages? So my monkey is now 25. He oh my goodness. He's my first baby. He was born on Camp Pendleton. Oh. And my baby girl is about to be 17 in a couple months. Oh. I call her my dove and my son is my monkey. So Aww. anybody who's ever heard me tell this story knows who dove and monkey are. Well, now, now we will for the remainder <laughs> of the podcast, monkey and dove got it. So I saw you tell your story on Randy Sutton's documentary titled the wounded blue. Right. And the wounded blue is a film by Jason Harney, right. uh, who I also, also had on my podcast, but um, it, it tells the powerful stories of six police officers, you're one of them, who inspired the creation of Lieutenant Randy Sutton's foundation called the Wounded Blue Foundation, which is incredible. Um, will you go ahead and just tell the story that you told on the Wounded Blue documentary so everyone can hear that story? Yeah, sure. Um, the first it's gonna, be, it's gonna be a hard story. It's it, the it is. The <laughs> and if you haven't watched the Wounded Blue, if you're out there listening and you haven't, yeah watched uh the wounded blue documentary film it's 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 a powerful documentary film uh jason harney and randy did a great job with it uh it's even me having participated in that project it's hard for me to watch that oh yeah of course but my my story uh covers a traffic stop that i that i initiated in 2013 it was october the 26th of 2013 and um so, you know, almost what, seven years ago now? Yeah. In October this year, be seven years. It it seems like it just doesn't get much uh, easier to tell the story. Oh, I know. It, I know. it was a traffic stop that I always say almost became my very last. So I think of that stop often, even when I'm in the patrol car today. Uh, I think of that stop because it's, it's, it's a reminder to me to keep my head on a swivel, remain vigilant don't fall into that complacent role that gets a lot of us hurt or killed. But I ended up, uh, I was working the night shift at the time I worked for Stafford police department. Now Stafford police department is also a suburb of Houston and it is also, it, it borders Meadows place. So there's uh, a lot of tri city. There's like a tri city around here where it's uh, Houston is this big metropolis of the city. And then you have all these little suburbs around Uh, Stafford and Meadows place are two of them. So where I work now is literally on the other side of the overpass from where I worked then at the time. Okay. For Stafford, I worked the night shift there. And on that particular night, on the 26th of October, um, I pulled over this car that happened to have three MS-13 gang members in the car. Oof. So if you're not familiar with MS-13, it's, violent, it's a violent gang. Um, 
that's uh, got ties to the Mexican mafia. They're, they're, they're known for being extremely violent, uh, beheadings and just vicious murders. And uh, they're, they're, they're a ruthless group. And, and when you have, you know, people who are members or they're trying to be affiliated, uh, you know, people will say, oh, it's just a wannabe. Well, I happen to think wannabes are very dangerous because they'll do just about anything to get that credit, that street. Oh, yeah. So uh, these three guys were uh, affiliated with MS-13. They had been, unbeknownst to me, of course, because, right, we don't get that luxury of, of knowing who we pull over all the time. Right. Uh, they had just come off a robbery spree in Houston. Well, so they'd been robbing people all night long at gunpoint and uh, pulled off of the freeway into the city of Stafford. I happened to catch, they happened to catch my attention while I was on patrol because they sat at a stoplight and they uh, had their left turn signal on. So they were facing southbound and I was traveling northbound. So we were kind of at three something in the morning. There's not a whole lot of traffic. You can see way down there at the light. And I noticed that the car was sitting in the moving lane of travel, the actually the fast lane at the light with its left blinker on. I could see from the front of their car that they had their left turn signal on, but they, they hadn't moved. And the light had cycled a time or two at that point. Oh, okay. So, of course, that gets my attention. I was just waiting for my partner, Brandon, to come back from, from the county. And we were going to go have chow after that. <laughs> and I remember his last words to me before he went to county. He's like, hey, see. I said, yeah. It's like, don't get in no shit. <laughs> so, oh, I, know, right? I know. So, I'm famous last words, right? No, you know, because I we would always plan to go eat at a certain time. Right. And, if you ever, if you had the luxury to eat when you wanted to eat, it was, it was, you know, far and few in between. So oh, yeah, uh, I hear you. So I, I'm, I'm driving toward this car and I see the, the turn signal on, but it's not in the turning lane. So I thought to myself, well, it's probably going to turn left from the wrong lane. And, um, and I can initiate a stop, be productive, be proactive, pass time while uh, my partner's busy and, and, and just keep working. Uh, so as I got closer to the car, I noticed that the light has cycled a couple times and it hadn't moved. So my, my cop brain starts working on what type of situation I could possibly be dealing with here. Right. So it, it could be, a you know, a drunk person sitting there at the light that's passed out or car trouble, you know, it could be a number of things. Somebody's lost or, uh, somebody is looking for someone to prey upon. So all of these things were swirling around in my brain at this point. Uh, I certainly didn't think uh, that it was going to be what it turned out to be, though. Um, I pass by the car, make this U-turn, and I go ahead and initiate the stop. We end up stopping in a trailer park uh, that was there on that street, but a little bit uh, of a slow roll away from the point that I initiated the stop. So I initiated the stop at the intersection. When I turn on those lights, the car rolls through the light. So I knew the car was still running, obviously. But I thought that it was going to pull, the car was going to pull off the road here to this well-lit area, which you see that at night. If you've ever worked a night shift, you know, cars don't always stop right there on the street. They want to find some lighted area to pull over. And I thought that's what was going to happen. And when they didn't do that, my my red flags got peaked a little bit more. And they moved past that well-lit area into this trailer park. Uh, slowly turned into the trailer park. And I thought, ah, he lives here. He probably lives here and he's probably drunk. And he's thinking, mm-hmm. if I just make it here, yeah, I'll be okay. 
And, uh, and so I thought that was a possibility. So there's a lot of things. And I think as a law enforcement officer, people don't understand this as a law enforcement officer, you're constantly having to change with the situation. Oh, yeah. It's not easy to do. And once you get a little experience under your belt, it gets a little bit easier. But you're always uh, improvising and adapting to an ever changing situation. And the person who ultimately has control of that situation is is the person that we're initiating contact with. They know how they're going to respond to us before we do. Mm -hmm. It makes it tricky. Uh, They pull into the into the trailer park and stop. I get out of the car. I start watching. There were a lot of, you know, looking back, because hindsight is always 2020. There, there were a lot of red flags there, pre-attack indicators that I that I picked up on, and then there were a lot that I missed. But when you get to study your video years after the fact, you pick up all of these things. And I and I think it's not a moot point. You can learn from them. But yeah. uh they're, they're definitely things that I look for specifically now when I'm out on stops. Uh, mm-hmm. The brake lights never went out. I never, I didn't pick that one up. That's something I would usually look for, but I was so focused in on this driver and the movement in the car because things were just not happening in the natural flow of a, of a typical stop. Right. And I, I had my spidey senses were shooting off and, you know, oh, danger, danger, you know, so I'm thinking something's all right, but I'm not quite sure. And and I missed a few things. One of those being the, the brake lights never went off, which was an indicator to me that he didn't plan on being there for a while at all. All right. What time of the night was so this? So this was about, I think the stop was about 3.40 in the morning. Oh, gosh, in the morning. Okay. And and I don't, I love, uh, I love working the night shift uh, at that time. Uh it's peaceful to me to some, you know, at night at three forty in the morning, at least in the city of Stafford uh, during that time, we didn't, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of ruckus going on. We were very, we were a busy for a little city. We were busy. We rock and rolled, but uh, we did have those moments of just calm and peace. And I always felt really um, just, uh, just clear, calm, relaxed at three forty in the morning when everybody's normally sleeping. Uh, but at that particular night, it, it didn't feel like that, particularly when I got out in this car. So it's very, um, okay. I always, I, I, I've been often said, it felt like I could feel the evil lurking there. I could feel the evil lurking there. And that always makes, mm-hmm. it, I remember that I get out of this car, Tamara, and I'm, I'm watching this, this, uh, this uh, other vehicle. I get out of my patrol car, I'm watching the vehicle and I could hear my heart beating in my ears. So uh, I could hear my heart beating. I could feel my sweat trickling down the back of my neck as I was walking to the car. Everything. Now I know this, right? Because again, hindsight and the fact that I've educated myself about how the body responds to stress. Right. But uh, I was just heightened. I was super heightened. My body was trying to tell me uh, something. And uh, I didn't, I just didn't have the knowledge that I have now on how the brain works and what goes on with the body. Uh, we recognized at that point, I recognized that, you know, a, what a gut feeling was, what an instinct, but I really didn't have the knowledge of all the stuff that could happen in your body. And all of those things were happening. My heart rate, my, my, my uh, sweat, everything that I was tuned into. I get up to the car and I stop behind the rear window of the, of the rear passenger. So I don't come past that window. I stood just behind, uh, 
the rear passenger's window. And I did that because I noticed that the rear passenger window was partially down, uh, but not all the way. What a lot of people don't know about is that the year prior, the October prior, 2012, wow. I was involved in a shooting oh in which uh, a suspect pinned my arm, my arm in his car window. And he dragged me down Ooh. the road and ended up throwing me from the vehicle. And so I ended up in a shooting. Wow. Uh, oh, wow. So when I saw this window down, my mind reflected back to that. And I remember saying, right. oh, I ain't sticking my arm in that window, right? And it was just a strange, really strange woo-woo moment. And um, I stopped at that window and I started to address the driver from that rear window. Uh, and, I, and I remember saying to him, you know, what are you doing? It was everything about the way that whole thing had gone, that whole stop had gone from beginning to where we were at that point was off. And um, I noticed that he, whenever he answered me, he spoke under his breath, uh, which told me that he wants me to come up closer. He wants me to come to his window, right? And these are all things you pick up along the way when you work the, when you work the job. Um, eventually, what ends up happening is we have some small dialogue there, me asking for a license, him telling me we're just coming from work, me asking the questions and him, you know, just not really answering them clearly or repeating the questions. You know how that goes out there. Hey, what's your name? What's my oh. name? Yeah. No, the other oh. you, behind you. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm coming from work. Where's work? I'm coming from work, you know. So those type of, of, of little uh, indicators that, that this isn't going to, this could possibly not go well and not going to be very compliant. Right. So uh, the driver starts to do this pat down looking for a, a, li a license. Now, if I asked you right now, can I see your license? You know exactly where to reach for it. Okay? Of course uh, I do. People who don't have them generally pat themselves all over their body because it could be, it could be in his bra, right? <laughs> so I thought, okay, this is not good. Um, and we go back and forth like that for what seemed like a long time, but uh, it was only just literally from the time I got out of the car to the time I took the first shot to my face was seconds, seconds. Wow. When they say it happens in seconds, they're serious. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. So I believe the last thing I said to him when he kept telling me he didn't have a license was what do you have? And he showed me. So I took the first shot, uh, the, it's interesting. I spoke to the driver the entire time. I said one thing to the rear passenger who stared straight ahead with a blank look on his face, never once turned to look at me, never answered me. I told him to drop the window down. He never moved. I picked up on that as well. Now the front seat passenger to the driver's right, I never addressed him. Uh, at one point, I think he said something to me about showing me the, showing me a paycheck. We're just coming from work, you know. I have a paycheck. Do you want me to show it to you or something like that? So, mm -hmm. uh, but the the brunt of all of my dialogue was aimed toward the driver, and I was most concerned with his movements and the passenger behind him's movements. Tactically, where I was standing, I felt great. I felt safe. If if they had to get to me, they were going to have to change their body position a lot more than I was. Mm -hmm. But I was giving up 
a lot of what I could see on that far right side of the car, the passenger side. And ultimately that's what got me. The passenger flips around in the passenger side of his seat. So, so essentially what he, what he does is he kind of gets up, turns, has produces this firearm that I never saw him produce. Uh, it was so fast. He comes through to the back seat uh, from the front passenger seat. So in between the driver and his seat, he comes through into the back seat and the back seat passenger who was sitting there is now gone. He's just, he's just gone. And um, I saw none of this. I, I didn't see any of this. What I saw from the moment I was talking to the driver was uh, I, I glanced over at the shooter at the precise moment that he pulled the trigger because I saw the muzzle flash shoot out at me. As I'm looking at it, the muzzle flash shoots out and hits me. And it's really, it's a strange thing how the brain works to process all of this stuff. Uh, you get that time distortion. Some people get auditory exclusion where they don't hear. Um, huh. I heard, but I feel like I there was a delay. So I, I could never put my finger on. I feel like I was shot and I felt the impact of the shot before I heard it. Or huh. I can't tell if I heard it and then felt the impact. It was, I, I, I have a tough time really putting my finger on it. And so it, it, it seems like such a small detail that's not really significant, but it is significant when you're trying to recall something so traumatic. Yeah. So I, I just remember, uh, I, I hear the gunshot and feel this, uh, at, and I don't remember in what order, but I feel this boom. So the first gunshot hits me in the left side of my cheek here and it travels through my face, comes out the left side of my jawline and it obliterates my entire earlobe. Um, my head starts to fly back. And at that point, I'm hearing this loud, crazy, intense, loud ringing in my left ear. Wow. It's uh, It was so loud. It was debilitating. I, I It was almost like that bothered me more than the actual shot. And the shot to my face felt like, now if you, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a former fight champion. I'm a former boxing champion. And wow. so I've okay. been, I've had my clock cleaned a time before, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> That to me felt, and I always say this, it felt like what I would imagine it would feel like to have Mike Tyson just kind of pop me in the face. Uh, it, oh. it was a very wow. powerful force. It, it felt like it shattered my whole face and my head's flying back. Now I've got this ringing in my ear and it was a oh, lot, yeah. was just a lot going on in that moment. My eyes dropped. Uh, my eyes were on the weapon. I saw the muzzle flash. My eyes come up. And I lock eyes with the shooter and we, we locked eyes pretty tight. Um, and uh, wow. to this day, I, I can, I can, if I could draw like my, like our daughters do, <laughs> I would draw that, yeah. but I can't. Uh -huh. So it's locked in there. It's there. It, just doesn't, it doesn't have the same effect yeah. on me that it used to have, but it, it was locked in there for a long time. And for a long time, that was very disruptive to my life in a lot of ways, but my head's flying back. I'm looking at him and I literally see the guy's face his expression change. That's how intently our eyes were locked together. And um, 
there's 50 million things going through your mind at this point. Um, some of these thoughts that can flash through your mind when something like this happens can seem so unreasonably irrelevant to what's happening, but it's the body. It's trying to process the brain is trying to process mm -hmm. all this. And so yeah. that's pretty much where uh, I was at the time that I started to turn to get the heck out of Dodge. And, and it was, it's so cute because, you know, I had a lot of people who saw the video in the initial stages say to me, man, that tactical retreat you did was amazing. And I'm like, what? I was like, okay. I was just trying to get the hell out of there. Right. <laughs> what awkward. I'm like, okay, that that'll work. I'll take it. But I really wasn't thinking yeah. like that. And that's where training comes in, right? Like training comes in think to survive. We're all wired as human beings to survive. So I want to get the heck out of Dodge. And that's what I turned to my right to do. As I turn to my right to get the heck out of Dodge, because I've just been shot in the face, I, I raise my left hand up to kind of cover my face. And when I do that, I take the second shot to the left side of my uh, left breast. So I did have a vest on and uh, I just was, you know, I'm exposed here at this part. So as I go to turn, uh, the second shot rings out. Now that one really manhandled me. And oh, if I thought the first shot hurt, girl, that second shot was was some kind of something. It knocks me back, like manhandles me, knocks me back. And I remember my first thought was, because I feel this this bullet go into me. Oh, wow. What, what kind so of- So there were handle? three guns shot at that scene. Mine was a um, uh, 40, Glock 40. Then there was 45 shell casing and nine millimeter shell casings. I was told that I was shot in the face and the chest by the nine millimeter. I always believed. And for the longest time I would ask my friend who was the detective in charge, I would say, are you sure? Are you sure? Cause I, I remember feeling to myself, like I was closer when I took the first shot. I had already moved a step yeah. or to the side in a way when the second shot hits me and I'm telling you, I used to tell him, are you sure? Because I felt like the second shot was a heck of a lot stronger and the bullet hole, it was big. The bullet hole was like, it was like a big hole in the left side of my boob. And, um, he said, those darn, those vests do not, do not cover that much underneath. And we had not to deflect on your story, but when I first, apartment in 1996 well 97 i think is when it happened 97 98 um we had a, a city cop next to us that got shot um they were they were uh, also on a traffic stop and he raised his arm and got shot right there and it's, actually oh, got killed. Oh, i know same thing. i'm telling you i am telling you and i believe this with all yeah. my heart i am oh. only alive and i believe this with all my heart i am only alive because god's grace he said i uh-uh, and I need you to stay there because I have something lined up I need you to do. That's how I believe. I, be I know that everybody believes in God. But if, if you want to hear my story, you've got to hear what I believe, right? And I'm telling you, my, my plastic surgeon, because I had to have extensive sur surgeries for these injuries, and my plastic surgeon, my doctors, you know, they all tell me, oh, my gosh, they're like a hairline, a hairline more. The the vest, I, I wore a, wow. a point blank vest at that time. And they had mm -hmm. come down. This is a little sidebar. They had come down to give me, 
to the PD a little bit of time after this happened. I was already back on patrol. They had come down to give me a, um, I don't know, a present. I, <laughs> I don't know what I, hello, thank you for getting shot in our event. I don't even know, but it was a nice kind gesture of this big portrait like a, like appreciation, I guess. I, I I don't know. They gave me this this big giant, awesome looking picture, uh, point blank. They they send some people out and they give you this. And apparently they do this wow. often when officers get shot in their vests. But I remember we were there and the chief asks the big question. The assistant the assistant chief at the time. He's now the chief, but he says, "Hey, do you know how? Do you know how she ended up with that injury on her chest?" And the lady, bless her heart, she's like, we're having coffee, right? She says, oh, that can happen sometimes, you know, when you get shot and, and, and you're wearing a bulletproof vest, you can get bruising and swelling and maybe even broken skin. <laughs> like, oh, you know, we uh, drink into our coffee and nearly like spit. At the same time, he says, she has a hole in her chest. And I, I had a hole in my chest, you know, and, and right. he picks up his phone and shows the photos of my chest injury. And they were bamboo. Like they were just, they didn't know what to say. Um, I, I don't, I've had a lot of people try to figure out what in the heck happened, because let me tell you something, the round that struck me in the chest that pierced my body. And according to my doctors, almost penetrated the entire chest cavity was found in the vest. Yes. What? It was in the vest. The round. In your body and bounced back? Boo. It went in my body, inside of my boob, and popped back out in, yeah. in the vest. I know they, I knew bulls yeah. do crazy things in bodies. I mean, they like bounce everywhere. I always refer back to boxing. This is funny, but it's the truth. It really helps me to explain and process a lot of life's curveballs, right? But the way I thought about it, um, I mean, I'm no vest expert and I've talked to a couple of experts in this field and, and it's just, it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre thing. And that what, that's what it always boils down to. Bullets do weird things sometimes, right? So the way I imagine it is, I'm wearing a bulletproof vest. It's custom fit to my, to my body. Uh, and mm -hmm. I'm turning this way. So as, as we all know, the part of the vest that kind of wraps around the side of the chest cavity area and, and heads underneath the armpit is kind of like the softest point of the vest. It's also not graded a certain amount of inches out, depending on what level vest you're wearing. Mm -hmm. Now, right. I imagine when you hit a heavy bag, right? You hit this heavy bag, bam, the bag goes and then it comes back, right? With the, the energy. And I just imagine that yeah. the round hit, it hit my vest, like probably at the like farthest part of the vest, just underneath or almost underneath my arm pit. And it hits probably that first panel. This is my theory. It hits that first panel of Kevlar and it kind of like bounces, right? Well, it does that. There's no more mess left. Just titty. Right, right. <laughs> so it goes in there. <laughs> I imagine that's what happened. It kind of hits that first panel, goes off. And like when you hit a heavy bag, it goes in, but then it pops back. Know, that's yeah. my theory. Hey, yeah, okay. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, it's not in my body. So, okay. So get that. 
I need to hear how, okay, so you, so you retreat, you turn, you get shot. So I then, got then to me what? back and, and uh, you... I, I have this whole, like what felt like an hour of a conversation in my brain housing group here. And um, your mind is going through some weird thought process. Uh, I, my, my first thought when that bullet hit, like I was telling you, um, it was, oh my God, my vest didn't, didn't catch that one. It burned. Um, I remember my legs wanting to collapse and me saying, don't go down, don't go down, don't go down. You know, just all of these things in my brain as I'm getting knocked backward. And uh, my final thought was, hey, you're in a gun battle here, girl. Any day you want to start shooting. And that was the last thought I had before I whipped around and I start to return fire. It felt like forever to me, but uh, it was actually not. It was it was just everything just flowed very I return fire. Um, yeah. I'm starting to shoot back and I can feel with every shot, the pain in my body and they do what these guys do. They flee. So they drive away. Uh, I see them leaving and I'm thinking to myself, okay. Um, I always revert back to what I know when it comes to stuff like this, as anybody does, when you reach the pinnacle of your stressors, on the job or in life, you're going to revert back to what you know. You're going to fall back, what do they say? Fall to the highest level of training. For me, uh, at that point, this is 2013, I'd only been in civilian policing for three years. So if you can imagine, all of the information that I was drawing upon was military-based. And in the military, Mm -hmm. one of the things they do teach you is, um, yeah, they teach you a lot like civilian policing, stand here so you don't get shot, move there so you don't get shot, watch the hands so you don't get shot. But then they take it a step further and they tell you, and now this is what you do when you get shot. And I found that was the piece of training that I I, I fell back upon the most that night was uh, going immediately into a self-assessment of, of my, my body, listening to my body. I started to tap all my fingers. Um, oh wow! just doing this with my fingers. That's something I learned. Uh, I really used in boxing. Once again, you fall back to your highest level of training. Well, what is boxing? Boxing is, is war. It's going to war every time you get in the ring. Right. So I, I, I did that a lot in boxing when I would get punched to the point where I felt like I lost motor skills. Cause you're basically kind of knocked out on your feet. And that's, that's what I was. I was bleh, totally discombobulated right at this point. So I start to tap each one of my fingertips to my thumb. I take my tongue. I start running it across my teeth because I'm checking to see if all of my teeth are intact. Because all I know is it feels like my face is shattered. I don't know what I'm working with, but I knew that I could speak because I immediately got on the radio and said, shots fired, I'm hit. I was just going to ask you, when did you so get we to have the radio? Okay. This little gun battle, they take off. When they take off, I radio in. When I radioed in, I turned and I immediately started to go back to my patrol car. And and I'm doing this. This is all simultaneous. This is all at the same time, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And I'm checking out of my teeth. I'm doing this. I'm sure you've, if you've ever watched a boxing match or an MMA match, fighters do this, right? I'm checking, I'm checking, is my jaw intact? Is my my teeth in place? Is my airway obstructed? I'm immediately doing this assessment on myself that I learned way back in my my Marine Corps days, in my boxing days, things that I did in my life for so many years that brought me to this moment. I 
I started boxing in my 20, wow. early 20s, right? Um, I started in the Marine Corps in boot camp at 18 years old. At the time I was shot, I was 40 years old. And if you'd have told me that I was going to be relying upon all of these things that I learned in my military and boxing career, I'd have never believed you. But it's true. It's true. And yeah. I end up doing the self-assessment of myself and I realized to myself, okay, you're still in this man because I could breathe. I could speak. I knew my airway wasn't obstructed. At least it wasn't obstructed by my teeth because they were all there. I go back to my car and at, at one point I get into the car because I realize you're still in this fight, man, your heart's beating. You could talk, have your wits about you, your fine motor skills about you. And these guys are leaving. And you, you can't let them leave. Right. So I get into my patrol car and of course I'm, I'm a woman. Right. So what am I going to do? <laughs> look in that mirror and see what I'm working with here. Right. <laughs> I look in the mirror and there's this big gaping hole in the left side of my cheek. And I was like, huh, Lord, it's not, doesn't look as gory as I had anticipated. You know, we watch Hollywood movies and, and it's just, you know, it doesn't, right, it's not, yeah. it doesn't always go down like that. So I noticed that I have this hole and I go, I said to myself, all right, we'll deal with that later. And, and, and I, and I initiate pursuit. It, it was a heck of a ride, man. Wow. It was a heck of a ride. We end up in a pursuit that lasted what felt like forever. <laughs> I'm so alone. Um, How long uh, actually so, for real? I only know this because, and I'm because I'm when I tell this story, I want to be as as truly authentic and honest as I can. I don't like to say it was this when I didn't know that at the time it was that, right? So I only know that the whole thing lasted about ten minutes from beginning to end because I I could see it on the dash cam, right? And at the time, I had no idea. It just felt like I right. drove forever. Uh, I, we were driving all over the city. I could tell they were trying to find the freeway and that they were not familiar with the city of Stafford because they were right by the freeway where we were. Right? Never got on it. So they go through the I whole never got city on trying to find it. So that told me they don't, they're not, they don't know this, this area very well. Uh, but it felt like forever. I, I remember, you know, taking little glances up into my rear view mirror and just, you know, there's so many blue back there. <laughs> Did, just like so a question. Yeah. Yeah. So how many cars showed up to a lot? You uh, in this pursuit? Is, nobody got to me until we okay. were done. So oh wow. If you can imagine, I mean, anybody out there listening, and you're you, you know this. Pursuits are very tricky. Vehicle pursuits are very tricky, particularly when they take you out of your own city that you police the city that you know, like the back of your own thigh, right? Ge ge uh, geographically, you know the city because you patrol it every day. Well, when they take you out of the city, you don't know. Now you're relying on street signs and, you know, and, and it gets very tricky. Plus you have to think about, are you driving? You, you have to drive fast, 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 but are you driving safe as possible for a pursuit? Are you paying attention to everybody else's driving? And luckily for, for me, at that hour of the night, there wasn't a whole lot of traffic on the, on the streets, but there were some people on the streets. So you're paying attention to the outside traffic. You're paying attention to your suspect. You're paying attention to, at this point, myself, street signs and, and things like that. So it, it was very tricky. And we are traveling in excess of 110 miles per hour at some points of this pursuit. Uh, so, 
you know, I would glance up in the rearview mirror looking for some red and blues. Well, I didn't, I never saw them. This is when I say I felt so alone. It, it was, it, you know, I, I like to joke and say that, but you do, you feel like, oh God, please let me just see some lights, you know, but they're, they're all coming. Were they, were you keeping, were you keeping up yes. with them this whole time? So and I'm were they coming back at you? I'm listening to the radio. I have got the cavalry from two counties, Fort Bend County, where I live in and work, and Harris County, which is Houston. Uh, people are coming. They're just, they're not there yet. They're, they're, they have to catch us. And we hop on a, uh, with what they call the beltway. It's, it's a toll road. I don't know if y'all have toll roads where you're at. So it's only one way. So if you're not going to mm-hmm. intercept us, you have to catch up to us. And as we're rounding uh, a curve on this beltway, on this toll road, they start shooting at me again. One of my shots blasted out the rear window of that car. So they now have this open area to shoot at me from. And they, they do that. They start shooting. Watch the dash cam. You can hear it. They're shooting at me. They're shooting at me. And, um, and I was just furious. I was just furious. I was like, how dare you? There's people around driving and these guys are shooting on the freeway. It was bizarre. Um, we end up in this, uh, in this apartment complex, they exit, they get off the freeway, they exit, uh, and they take me into this residential area. And way back in the day when I was in the Marine Corps, I was assigned to the criminal investigation division to CID and I investigated gangs outside of many, many years back. Uh, I hadn't had any gang training up until now, but what stood true to me was that Hispanic gangs tend to be very territorial and they will commit crimes and go right back home to their neighborhoods. Um, and, and I remember wow. thinking to myself, oh, wow, they're going you know, right back home. So they get off the freeway and the driver does something really interesting. He signals his turn as he turns right into this area, he signals his turn. Oh. And I remember, oh, how noble of you. That's crazy. <laughs> but it, it really spoke volumes <laughs> to me. I, I felt. He was on, he was on well, automatic what I thought, was doing his I thought to myself, okay, you're driving like a bat out of hell to get away from me over a hundred miles an hour to get away from me. And now all of a sudden you slow way down and you signal your turn. You want me to follow. So my cop brain says, ah, he's baiting you in to an ambush. Mm -hmm. So that's where my mind went. I drop back, let them turn in. I slow myself, but I still kind of, I still go back there. Uh, I just, at that point decided I'm not going to follow them back into this, what looked like an apartment complex. And and they were going in that direction. And I told myself, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go back there. I knew I was already injured. Um, I wasn't in pursuit because I was trying to be, some type of superhero. I was in pursuit because they shot me and now they're out, out on the loose um, in public. And if they don't care to shoot a uniformed police officer, God knows what these people will do to, you know, the citizens in the city. And so uh, that's why I was pursuing. I wanted to catch them, but I also knew that I was injured and that I still didn't have my backup there. And I, I believe part of being a, a, an effective law enforcement officer is to know when, you do need to disengage. What is the smarter thing to do? For me in the moment uh, that they drove back into the apartment complex, it was, okay, they're baiting me. They want me to come back there, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sit right here, and I'm going to wait. My sergeant was totally on board at that point, too, because it was at that point that he tells me, um, 
you know, don't pursue, don't pursue, stand your ground. And we were completely on the same page there. Uh, and I just waited. And, and, and it was seconds that when I was stopped there, it was within seconds, within a minute that uh, the units started to arrive there to assist me. Uh, first, it was my two partners, my sergeant and my other beat partner. There was another partner that I told you was at the jail that was that was uh, ultimately assigned to my family. He had the good. Um, he had the the task of going to my house and you know knocking at my door and and doing that whole yeah. thing, which would have been the second time in one year that my family had to get that type of, you know, oh. news. So immediately I fall into what, you know, what we tend to to fall into. And that's the guilt. Guilt of what we do started to set in almost immediately. Once the, yes. When you were, when you were out there, the I'll, I'll tell you, I, when wow. we were out there, I was all work. Like for me, it was like, Hey, we still need eyes on the scene. We still, I wanted to relinquish control of the scene, but at the same time, I, I, I needed to make sure that I could, you know what I'm saying? In my brain, like, it's not time, it's not time. But at some point, you know, they start to undress me uh, to assess my chest wound. And they put me on a gurney and they put me into the box, you know, the ambulance to uh, HBD is going to escort me to the trauma center. It was as soon as they, so, so they're putting me, they have me on this gurney and they're wheeling me toward the ambulance. And I could see my partners like, and I say my partners like all the cops. They were running by and and and, and stopped yeah, to look down at me. And I'm giving them, you know, I'm okay, I'm okay, right? Um, they put me in that ambulance, and I I just my mind immediately went to my kids. Yeah. I thought about my kids, and I started oh, thinking God. to myself, damn, you know. Again, I did this again to them. You know, again, again, they're gonna they're gonna have someone wake them up. And they're gonna have to hear about this. I thought about my chief. You know, yeah. oh, gonna be mad because I'm do I did this again. You know, it's it's yeah. it's the most bizarre and unreasonable thought process to think that any of it was my fault. But that's what you know. That's what I was doing. I was thinking about how it was gonna affect my family. Yeah, let's talk about that after a quick break because I want to get more into detail with you uh, about the post-traumatic stress disorder and what it does and what it's still doing to you. But I need to know, are all three of these guys in custody? Yeah, yeah. all three are in custody. All three of them are in prison right now. Um, The the officers that showed up on the scene uh, were able to capture one of them immediately. The shooter was caught that night and the other two were outstanding for Uh maybe a week. We we did a press conference and they were caught... uh, because Houston Crime Stoppers doubled the reward money, and so people start coming in. They were caught, so they they're all caught. They're all in in, in prison. The driver never fired a shot. He got life in prison because of Texas. <laughs> wow! <laughs> because Texas, baby. Uh, and then the other two, uh, one uh, the one in the back seat got fourteen or fifteen years, and the one in the front seat who shot, who actually touched me with bullets, got. Um, uh, 50 years on my charge that he pled out to 50 years on my charge. And uh, I think it's 30 or 35 years. I'm not sure 30 or 35 years for a murder that they had just committed weeks before they met. So these, these guys needed oh, to be on. Point. Yeah. But it was, it came at a, it came at a, yeah, at a huge cost yeah. to a lot of people. Yeah. 
Oh, of course, of course. And that we will talk about that as, as soon as we uh, take just a quick break. We'll be right back. Are you interested in CSI or forensics? The Forensic Science Academy program has been recognized as the premier training program completely dedicated to students who are launching their forensic career. The Academy offers specialized hands-on training modules in basic and advanced crime scene investigation, forensic photography, fingerprint identification and classification, crime scene management, and coroner investigations. Instruction is offered in the form of weekend workshops, online courses, webinars, and seminars. Training at the Academy of Forensic Science will give students the competitive edge employers and agencies are looking for when hiring. Past graduates are now working as crime scene investigators, private investigators, forensic pathologists, coroner investigators, forensic nurses, forensic accountants, and even criminalists. The courses are taught by forensic professionals who are experts in the field and hold membership in the International Association for Identification and other professional forensic organizations. For more information, visit ForensicScienceAcademy.org. Again, that's ForensicScienceAcademy.org. Have you ever wondered what being a part of CSI is really like? If so, here's your chance to experience it. My book titled Through My Eyes, CSI Memoirs That Haunt the Soul, contains 11 personal accounts of the most grueling and heartbreaking crime scenes I worked during my 15 years in the Crime Scene Investigations Unit. While reading my book, you'll walk inside the crime scene tape with me. You'll catch a glimpse of what I saw, touched, smelled, and even tasted during an average workday. I'll take you on a difficult journey of memories, uncovering layers of emotional trauma left behind. So if you're considering a job in CSI, this is the book for you. Or if you're just wondering what it's like to work in CSI, again, this is the book for you. Through My Eyes is available in the ebook format and paperback on Amazon. Okay, we're back from break, and um, I'm going to read something that Lieutenant, uh, retired Lieutenant Randy Sutton said in The Wounded Blue. Um, he said, I quote him, law enforcement officers are on the front lines of seeing all of the ugliness that humanity is capable of. We're exposed to cruelty, violence, death, tragedy, and seeing it and being involved in it day after day throughout their career. And he calls that a national tragedy. So again, I saw you on his show, The Wounded Blue, and Randy uh, Sutton says this, it is a national tragedy. So let's, let's talk about you. Let's talk about you as a person, as a mom, and as a law enforcement officer, because you're, you're, you're all of this. You're all of this wrapped up in one. And now I'm having tears in my eyes. I don't know why. Because you're a mom. <laughs> yeah. You're going to do this, aren't you? <laughs> and I, I'm happy to say I am retired. I've been retired for four years. And with all these riots going around in this world right now, I, I have to tell you, I am glad I'm retired. I don't know how I would handle it right now if I was on being a single mom, right. truly single, meaning like I'm her only parent. 
Um, like if I die, that's it. Like, I don't know, you know, it's so, so anyway, back to you, you're a mom, you're a law enforcement officer, you're, you're many more things, a friend. And, and, you know, I don't know if you're a sister to anyone or I'm going to, you're a daughter, but I mean, talk about the post-traumatic stress. Like when did that kick in? When did you, not when you were diagnosed, but when did you know in your heart, oh my God, I have post-traumatic stress. Like when did you start feeling the effects of that. And I don't think I, I don't think I had a moment uh, of, oh my God, I have PTSD. I, I knew what well, I thought. So I think your average person, if you, if you had a room full of 25 people and you said, who knows what PTSD is, probably 25 people would raise their hand. Yeah. I promise you 25 people do not truly know what post-traumatic stress disorder, which they're now trying to ref- to take to get away from calling it a disorder and call it post-traumatic stress injury, which I Absolutely. am all about that because it is very yes. cool. Um, but there's it would surprise you how many of those 25 people who raised their hand thinking they knew a thing or two about PTSD really truly don't. So I could just to answer your your question, I didn't have a defining moment of oh my god, I have PTSD. I didn't, I didn't think that. Uh, I think I probably resisted the thought of that. Uh, yeah, most officers do for a while. Uh, but what I and I knew, well, I thought I knew about that whole thing. So I, I thought whatever I was dealing with, I thought this this is something else. This is I'm losing my mind. Um, something's wrong with me. But I didn't think PTSD because in my brain, PTSD must have not really been as bad as what I was going through. Oh, okay. I didn't have that cognizant thought. Well, this can't be PTSD because this is worse. But looking back, that's that's probably what I really think that's what I was thinking because it was so bad what I was going through that I thought, no, you know, I'm I'm crazy. Something I something broke in me in my brain, and I'm crazy. Well, yeah, it was my brain, but it wasn't broken. It was injured, and it was that traumatic event that that kind of. what it did was essentially rip the scab out of a lot of trauma in my life that I had endured. But it, it was just the, that one drop of water that put too much water in my cup and it just overflowed. Um, That's a good analogy. I like that. Yeah. It was just that one. And you know, if you think about it and when I do, when I do uh, my speaking and I present for people, I do an exercise where I use a pitcher of water and a cup. Oh, wow. And it's very powerful to see that with your own mm-hmm. eyes, the way that I explain it. And when you're watching someone experience what that does to you, because you could take the beefiest, most buff guy, girl in the audience to hold that cup up. And and eventually uh, they're going to tap because under the weight of the water, it, it will have an effect on the muscles. Right. The body. And, and, and that's what happened. So it wasn't... Um, me saying, oh my God, I have PTSD. It was me saying, oh my God, I've lost my mind and I don't know <laughs> what's wrong with me. And I think another mis- misconception that a lot of people have about post-traumatic stress is that it happens immediately. Mm-hmm. And PTSD or PTSI injury, whatever you're calling it these days, doesn't happen like that. It doesn't develop overnight. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder can uh, take a long time to, to show. And for me, I was shot in October. I waited. I almost waited and braced for it. Cause remember I had been in a shooting the year prior. 
Mm-hmm. I really didn't end up feeling, I felt like I came out of that shooting unscathed, if you will, emotionally. You weren't struck right. in that shooting, were you? No, I shot the suspect in, in, okay. in, so in the different. second one. It was different, right? Different dynamic. Uh, I was still I was still injured, but that was the, the gist of it. I was injured because he dragged me with a car. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that whole scare of, oh my God, I almost was just killed. But it was just very on a different level for me. And I say for me, because it is important to understand that trauma for everyone affects them differently. And it's not, I've had thousands of officers will come up and say, you know, I've never been through anything like as like you, as if their trauma is less than mine. And that's just not like to hear that because it's not true. Something that's traumatic for you might not bother me. Something that's traumatic for me may not bother you. So for me, uh, I got shot in October. I've waited to see if I was going to feel some kind of way about it. Uh, I was a little, I had a little trouble sleeping, you know, the early, the early normal early signs like uh, trouble sleeping, you're kind of amped up a little bit, kind of on autopilot, all of these things. Uh, but they eventually kind of dwindled away and I felt so great to head back to work. I went back to work in February right. and it wasn't until several months after I went back to work that I had um, the first of many massive panic, you know, anxiety attacks. And that scared the shit out of me because uh I couldn't control myself emotionally. Uh, I wasn't doing anything stressful. I was in my patrol car, just patrolling, singing to the good. I remember what I was singing. I was singing Hungry Like the Wolf by Duran Duran. <laughs> Whenever I hear that song, I'm like, mm, you know, um, I was singing that song. And uh, all of a sudden I felt like I couldn't breathe. And before you know it, I was face down and then on the ground because I couldn't breathe. Crazy. Uh, when they, my partners came, there was an ambulance and they put me in the ambulance. Now I hadn't been in an ambulance since all of that had happened. Mm-hmm. And when I ended up in the ambulance, ooh, oh yeah, it takes. I your head lost out. it. I lost it. So all of these things happened within, let's say, maybe five months after I got back to work. This is a very, very good example of delayed onset post-traumatic stress. That is a thing that a lot of people don't really know about. Some people seem to think that, oh, um, she was in a massive car accident last week. She has PTSD or he was in a shooting a month ago. He has PTSD. It doesn't doesn't work like that. The fact of the matter is post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder are two different things. And one does not equate the other, or one does not mean you have the other. So that's something I really hope people listening will listen, will remember. Um, Mm -hmm. PTS and PTSD or PTSI, they're not one and the same. One doesn't have to become the other. Um, And also PTSD is, is not a a mental illness. It's a brain injury. Mm -hmm. It's a psychological brain injury. So uh, I tell those two tips, uh, give that two nuggets because those were really um, the turning point for me when I was in a really, really deep, dark place. And then I started to educate myself. Those were uh, two things that I learned that kind of made me have aha moments and a little light. Ah, oh, you mean I'm not crazy. Okay. You know, yeah, right. 
validated you. Yeah. So it, it was for me, it was several months after the fact that I started. And that's not to say that I wasn't having, you know, some issues at home, but at the time I didn't know it. It's like, I didn't make the connection because if you don't know what you're looking for, if you don't know how to identify warning signs and triggers, how the hell are you going to know? Right. Yeah. So I didn't know, but looking back, the signs were there. Like how many, okay. When you were working the job all those years, how many times did you have a headache on duty? How many days did you have a headache out of your lifetime span? She's laughing. She's laughing because she's like, she's like, chick, I have a headache right now. <laughs> I always had headaches. Always. I feel like, I feel like every single day. I have. But I, but I would always associate it with, okay, well, I just haven't had my soda yet today. I haven't had my caffeine. Or, or, they, which, or these people don't know how to act. <laughs> yeah, I always had a headache for 20 years. I never got enough sleep. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Again, I mentioned that I'm happy to be oh, retired. Oh gosh, well earned. No doubt, lady. Well earned. So happy for you. So what do you do for your PTSD moment? I call them moments. Have you read my book yet, Through My Eyes? No. Okay, I need to send it Please to you. Please do. Don't, don't it. Yeah, it's 11 of my worst crime scenes that just after I retired, they just, they went whoom, right yes. in my face. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm retired now. Why are these all of a sudden, yeah. like, bombarding? You know why? Like, major what? life changes. Absolutely. Yes. Retirement yes. is a huge life change. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do for your PTSD? Like, what do you, Anne, what do you do to, con to control it? Like, I mean, do you go to counseling? Do you, uh, and your daughter's on board too. She has to know, you know, what you're going through and, and, and what your little triggers are. Things oh, like that. Yes. So, my, both my children, you know, both my children, but my son doesn't live yeah. at home. My daughter, it's just she and I, we live here with us, uh -huh. and she's on it. Like she is me. And, and, and what's interesting, and I'm glad you brought that up because here's the thing. Uh, what do I do Just to answer your first part of your question? What do I do? Well, the first thing was, was you have to receive it. You have to, you have to achieve a, a, an acceptance. You have to get to that point of acceptance. Like, look, dude, my brain is injured because I am called to serve you. Period. Right. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. But I, I didn't lay down for very long and go, Oh, woe is me. I'm, you know, I'm all fucked up and, and, and poor me. Like you have to do the work. So I, ha I had a moment where I, I like to call it, I, I had a moment of finding my why. But so that's the first part for me, what to, to initiate that, oh gosh, I have post-traumatic stress disorder and I need to work on this, right? I, I have to take responsibility for myself. And, but anyway, um, not only that, my daughter, my son, my, my ex-husband, all of them were affected by this all of them there, they, they, there's, there's this term called secondary PTSD or vicarious trauma. Basically okay. those are fancy terms for your, your, look, look, your PTSD is contagious and the people that love you the most, they're going to get that shit yeah. from you. If you're not careful and you care your business. I remember my dog who now lives full time with his daddy, but when we were all together, the dog like had these like itchies, right? He was itch, 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 itch. Well, I had the itchies too, because what I didn't know was that that is a symptom that's symptomatic of unresolved post-traumatic stress issues. Your body will tell you in lots of different ways. And that's a whole other podcast, but 
I had the itchies. The dog has the itchies. So one day I look over at the dog and I shout at my husband. I'm like, Tyson has fleas, <laughs> right? <laughs> I swear my dog, my poor dog could talk. I remember he turned and he looked at me almost like he understood every word I said. And he's looking at me and he stops. And it was as if, I mean, I literally could hear the dog like, bitch, that's you. <laughs> you making me wow. itch. You're driving me insane. Right? It's like my dog was depressed. My dog was itching. I mean, it, it, it affects everybody. And because it does, the, the learning process has to be done together. It has to be done together. And my daughter is on it now. Like she was just itty bitty, eight, nine years old between the two shootings. Now she turns on her PlayStation to play a game and she'll be like, Hey, we're going to play a war game. Oh, that's so sweet. That she realizes tells that. me this every single time before she will play anything that involves shooting or an explosion or anything like that. Um, hey, we're gonna do that. You know, hey, we're gonna we're gonna play war games. And and her friends, her her close friends, she she keeps a very small circle of friends. They all know why, and it's not a big deal. Or she might be like, mm, "Mom's amygdala swelling," you know. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm acting a little stank, right? Uh, my startle reflex is a little extra. She understands yeah. because when I started to initiate doing the work for my post-traumatic stress, and then to answer your question at more in more detail, which in which involved really setting up a corner team like a fighter does, right? And this is how I present it when I'm presenting. In order to become a champion fighter, which I know all about because, hey, but in order to become a champion fighter, you have to have a champion corner, your trainer, your cut man, your, the guy that holds the spit, yeah. right? It's a team effort. And it's the same, it's the same when you are fighting your opponent that is post-traumatic stress. Uh, you have to do the work. You have to create a strategy. And it wasn't until I had that why moment when I realized, you know, you need to, it was, it was much like the moment during the shooting where I said, Oh my God, you're in a gun battle here. Any day you want to start shooting right, right. Happened yeah. in my family. I mean, I couldn't eat. I couldn't stop eating. I couldn't, I couldn't poop. I couldn't stop pooping. My stomach was a mess. My, I was itching. My, I was having skin rashes. My hair was falling out. The nightmares were horrible. My babies were struggling. My son got depressed daughter was having nightmares. They were both struggling with anxiety. My marriage was on the rocks. What everybody saw as this brave thing to do, essentially an entire nation of people just flooded me with support. Very different from the way stuff is going right now, right? It flooded me with love and support. But people from other countries like Japan and Australia and, yeah. and, and Scotland, it, it was bizarre. To me, wow. the people that reached out, Nigeria, right, are sending me all of this love and support. And and at I, I tell you, it, it just wasn't it it wasn't what I needed at the time. I thought that would be enough. I thought all that love would be enough and all that love and support. And and that's what I did for my kids, loved on them, support, hey, love, we're gonna be okay. I did what I thought I should do as a mom. It wasn't enough. So I think it's best that people know now, this is not an opponent that you can fight with loving and just having that support and those feel good words. It's not, you have to do the work. You're in a fight with an opponent that is relentless. They fight, it fights dirty. It will kick the crap out of you and it will do the same to your family once it's 
done working on you. Um, and I had to learn that the hard way. I, I had to realize you're in a battle here, girl, any day you want to start shooting, right? I had to start putting stuff down range. And it wasn't until I had that why moment that I realized, okay, you got to come up with a plan and work and fight back. And that's what I did. I found a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. I started going to therapy. I had to trust the process. And in order to trust the process, I had to submit to taking medication because I was totally, I am not taking medication. You can't do this job and be medicated. Well, I couldn't do the job and not be. (laughs) The problem that we're seeing a lot now, you see a lot of law enforcement officers out there that are acting out in ways that's getting them in trouble, that's getting them indicted, that's getting them complaints, uh, excessive force. What is that? It's basically people's inability to control their temper. And why is that? Because their cup's running over. The stress of this job mm-hmm. is too much and they're not, they're not dumping that cup of water so that it's empty. So get a corner team, get a corner team uh, that's going to help you fight, not just a corner team that's going to hug you and tell you everything's going to be okay. You got to fight and get your family on board. Right. You know, you got to get your family on board. I think as cops, we try to protect our kids so much from, you know, if something's kicking my ass, I certainly don't want to introduce it to my kids. Yeah, you do. Because uh, believe it or not, your kids will help you fight that. And, um, yeah. and I think our children are so much more resilient than we give them. Yeah, exactly. My babies exactly. are, are extremely, extremely strong. Um, what they have gone through in their little young lives has really stripped them of a lot of their innocence, but they have been able to, um, like me, turn that around and take that pain and turn it into something really powerful. But that time and work right. and, and dedication to the process, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go and, away. And it works. You're, yeah, you're such an inspiration just listening to you and, and hearing your analogies and, and how you set it up, like the corner, the team, you know, that it, the way you're approaching it as, you know, a team, it, you know, you need your corner, your people in your corner. I love the way you set that up. And, and it, I think I'm hoping that it, the listeners are, are visualizing that. And if anyone out there is struggling with PTSD, that they're understanding now, oh, okay, that's what this is. That's what this is going like. That's what I need to go do. This is my next step. So, so there's so much information out there at your fingertips. You just have to be very careful and mindful of where you're getting that information. Um, I have a wealth of information that I uncovered because I started to investigate my opponent, which is supposed to I started to investigate that like, like a criminal, right? I wanted to know why are you kicking my ass? What's, what do I need to do? Right. And I have a lot of information out there that I, that I, um, that I can share. Uh, I'm easy to find. So people can find me if they want to pick my brother. So, so share that with us. How do, how do they find you on? Let's take one at a time because I'm sure you have different names on each thing. Like, so Twitter, so how do they find you on my Twitter? My public uh, avenues of social media are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And they are all under Officer Anne-Marie Carrizales. Uh, so you're going to have my name there. They'll be able to spell it. But what I'll tell you is, uh, in addition to uh, having that corner, you need to make sure you have a battle buddy because before you ever, before a fighter ever gets in the ring to fight and compete, right. They're sparring with sparring partners. 
So oh, yeah. You need that. Yeah, you need sparring partners. You need buddies, battle buddies to get in there with you who are going to hold you accountable where you're deficient, yeah. where you're strong. It's preparing you for that fight and you need to have that. And so I'm hoping that if nothing else after this podcast, people at least walk away with knowing that they have a battle buddy in Texas by Anne Marie. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I'll take you there and show you the way, but I certainly cannot do the work for you. I can't. Uh, you ain't special. <laughs> you got to do the work yourself. I have to do the work. You got to do the work. But I can certainly show you the way yeah. because I have been there. So um, when I say you go, I go, that's exactly what I mean. Uh, I, I can Absolutely. go with you, show you, but uh, yeah. you got to well, just, just that you're willing to let people approach you and write to you and make contact with you and reach out right. and, and talk about that. That's amazing. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being there for everyone else who you may or may very, not. Very, very welcome. I, I thank you for getting the word out to people because this is a topic we need to ha be having the conversation about. Uh, yeah. And with all these riots going on. Every single right. officer right. is affected. Right, right. I do sure. a presentation really quick. It's called The Fight After the Fight. Uh, the Fight After the Fight also has an email address, thefightafterthefight at gmail.com. Now, Fight After the Fight is, okay. a, uh, is a presentation that I offer all over the country and outside of the country. And uh, it's been very helpful to a lot of, of officers who have found themselves uh, either in the fight after the fight or who are trying to prepare and have a fight plan and strategy before they end up there. That's the right. key. That's the key. They're teaching you how to survive the street, the fight on the streets. They're not teaching you mm -hmm. what to do after you've survived that fight. And that's um, honestly, it's, it was, it was the most difficult part for me. Taking those two shots. Yeah. That was the easy part. Understandably. That, and that speaks volumes. Yeah. So. Okay. And I, again, I, I cannot thank you enough from the bottom of my heart that you're here you're to share the story, your story. Um, so glad all three of yes. us are in prison right now. Glad, glad yes. you got back in your car and chased after and, them. My and I, and I do want to tell you, you, my children are thriving. They're doing well, but we still continue to do the work. We really do. We really do. Yeah. Every day is going to be Every day is still not a great day. Right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not yeah, right. sunshine and rainbows every day. But that's okay. Yeah. It's okay to have a bad day. Just don't, don't. Yeah. Well, you're still putting that vest on and the uniform on and getting in that car, which, which, which is like, no, oh, I know. If I think too hard on it, I'll start to feel that guilt creep in. I got to get rid of that negative, yeah. you know, that negative self-talk, but I'll tell you what, um, it's a calling for me and my, my children understand that. So. Good for you. Well, Anne, thank you again. I cannot you're very say welcome. thank you enough. I really, really appreciate you telling your story. Take care, you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Real Life Podcast was recorded and is being made available by Anchor.fm and its affiliates, solely for the informational and entertainment purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided and or expressed on the Real Life Podcast are entirely those of the host, guests, and callers, 
and are responsible for all show content and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the agencies and communities that the guests may serve. Some parts of the Real Life Podcast may contain adult content intended for people who are 18 years of age or older. Please listen responsibly.